What's happening, everybody, and welcome back to the Funky Brain Podcast. My name is Dennis, and this is my funky brain, and we're going to have a fun chat today. Um, our guest today is a rock and roll legend who really needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. And <laughs> he's the lead guitarist and vocalist for the legendary rock band Firefall, who we all know for such hit songs as You Are the Woman That I Always Dream Of, and Just Remember I Love You. Hey! Among that, others. That's a strange way to tell me you love me. Woo! They're releasing their first new album in more than two decades, and I'll let him tell you about that here in just a minute. Mr. Jock Barley, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And uh, our new Firefall album, Comet, is uh, coming out December 11th, and we're just really excited, you know, because it's been two decades since we had any new product. So my show, it's based mostly in like addiction recovery and life mastery, but also just like inspiration and motivation. And there's nothing more motivating and inspirational than a legendary rock star continuing <laughs> to crush it over four decades of rocking out. How do you guys keep going, man? The main thing to a band's success, in my view, is you got to have the songs. You might have great players and a great lead guitar player and a great drummer, et cetera, et cetera. But if you don't have the great songs with a great singer to sing them, that people relate to and want to buy tickets for, you're you're kind of missing the boat. And when Firefall first got together in the in late 1974, our our first album came out in '76. Um, we formed the band around uh, two singer-songwriters, Rick Roberts, who, who wrote most of all, of all of the hits, the ones you've been naming, Larry Burnett from Washington, D.C., who wrote Cinderella and a whole nother kind of class of songs because Ricky was the, the guy who wanted to write hit songs and appeal to women and have radio stations play. So he had a formula for those songs, like Just Remember I Love You. And then Larry's song, like Cinderella and a few other ones, were like this purging of his soul, you know. And to have two of those kind of writers in the band, um, it was Mark Andes with, uh, on bass from Spirit and JoJo Gunn and Firefall and later Heart. Mark was in the world famous, you know, superstars heart for about 12 years. And uh, Michael Clark, who had been the drummer of the birds and the flying breeder brothers. Um, we had about 25 songs to work out on our first day of practice. And of course, most bands don't have any songs to start with, or maybe they have some, they don't know what they're going to sound like uh, or the, what the band's supposed to sound like we had a synergy between the five of us. And then we added David Muse on sax flute keyboards to make our first record in 1976. We had a synergy and a sound that when we worked out one of Rick or Larry's songs, it sounded like us. It sounded like Firefall, the, the new band. And we didn't have to try to sound like anybody. We just were that. And that was really lucky. And, Again, it goes back to the songs because once our first album came out um, and Atlantic Records held back You Are the Woman, figuring that that was going to be the big hit of the summer. 
So they put out the first single, Living Ain't Living, in the spring to kind of introduce our name. And it got in the top 40 and, oh, the new band from Colorado. And then You Are the Woman hit in the summer. And we were suddenly out of the box. Our first tour, well, our first tour was with Leon and Mary Russell for a little bit. But the first main tours, when we first came out, the first part was the Doobie Brothers um, for a month. And then the band, we played the last band tour with Levon Helm and Robbie Robertson and all those amazing, funky Americana dudes. And we played uh, with them uh, as their prime or uh, uh, opening act until they went out and made the last waltz and broke up. You know, they made the movie and broke up. But, you know, and then the last third of our, you know, summer long tour was with Fleetwood Mac during the White Album. And, and they loved us because we could go out. And even if we didn't get a sound check, we were just a cooking little band with great songs that could play a, a, a kick-ass 35 or 40 minute show as an opener. And so when Fleetwood Mac in 77 came out with Rumors, we did a lot of Rumors shows too in front of 80,000 people or whatever. And it, it was just a really, really blessed time and you know fated for me as a guitar player because the truth is is there's hundreds of thousands of great guitar players now i'm a really good lead guitar player but i was perfect for rick and larry's songs to play my style of melodic soloing behind and on top of their songs but you know if i hadn't run into rick roberts and 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 rick knew larry and flew larry out you know um, I would have just been one of those unknown guitar players who was really good that played in front of, you know, 30 people a night. So I really was lucky. And uh, I know how fortunate I am. And here I am. I just turned 70 years old. And, you know, other than the pandemic, we were still out doing 50 or 60 or 70 shows a year and people paying good money to come and hear us. And, and you know, the band and I love to do the meet and greets after a show because, you know, and of course, you know, country artists figured this out, you know, 20 years ago that a meet and greet will sell, you know, 10 times more CDs and T-shirts than if you don't go out there. But for me to be able to talk to your fans and hear their stories, uh, oh, we got married to just remember I love you or man, that song of yours blank really helped me through a really serious life threatening disease. And I want to thank you for saving my life. And and we're going, wow. Music is is such a healing thing. And as a songwriter, I was a late bloomer as a songwriter. When I joined into Firefall, like I said, we had 30 songs to play from the first day of practice, you know, of great songs, many of which ended up on our first record. You know, and Mark Andes and I, Mark, the bass player from Spirit and a rock star, you know, he's the biggest rock star in our band. Um, he, uh, you know, he and I were just like floored. We had all this great material. What else you got? You know, and we go, wow, this is great. Um, when I developed as a songwriter, and honestly, because I was already in a band that had big hits, so I didn't have to really think, okay, I got to get on the radio, or I got to make money, or I got to, you know, whatever. I just let my songwriting develop naturally, and... Um, you can obviously tap into that muse that 
you may know not not know what you need to say in a song or what a lyric's going to be. Just like I'm a painter too, and the same thing with a painting. You're staring at a little at a blank canvas. What do we do? You know, I, I don't know unless you have a real good idea. But as a songwriter, I've written a lot of songs that came from really deep. That some people go, "Wow, where did that come from?" I was asked to write a song in the mid '90s for suicide prevention. I said, well, I can write a good song. And they were going to try to, there was a, a hotline that was about to lose their funding and go out of business and not be able to help kids, you know. And at that time in the 90s, I mean, I think suicide was the second or third most uh, cause of death between 15 and 25 years old. And I mean, what do you know when you're 16 or 18 years old? Oh, I lost my girlfriend. I'm going to kill myself. Oh, I didn't make the football team. I'm going to kill myself, you know, and it's uh, it's really deeper than that. I don't want to make light of it. But anyway, I sat down and started writing this song that really wrote itself and came from way deep. And I was having trouble keeping up with writing the lyrics that were coming out, my, come up out of my mouth. The song is called Call on Me. And the person singing the song is the person manning the hotline telephone, talking to the kid in crisis, trying to talk him down. Wow. And it's amazing because, I mean, suicide is one of the, you know, the harshest and most difficult uh, things to deal with for families. And, and you know, and uh, it's just terrible. And my song is actually very positive which if I would have tried to write a positive song about it, you know, I probably would have failed, but it came out in about 15, 20 minutes and I presented it and um, they put it on an album and made a little money and were able to stay in business in Colorado Springs, which was great. And then I had, I kept thinking, well, I got this song. What am I going to do with it? And I started putting on in the late nineties, suicide prevention benefits. I did two in Nashville, uh, Michael McDonald uh, was my headliner two, two times. Uh, Winona Judd did one. Um, David Pack from Ambrosia. Um, Rusty Young from Poco. The third one we did was in San Francisco and Journey was my headliner, you know, for this suicide prevention deal. But a quick little story. Um, I've had some amazing high points in my career, musical career, and one of them was when we were at the Bluebird in Nashville, which is like 120 seats, you know, it's like really small and packed, you know, and, um, and M Michael McDonald came up to me at halftime on the break and said, uh, hey, Jock, um, Steve Winwood's in the crowd and would you mind if he sang a song or two? And I went, would I mind? You know, I went, sure. So Steve Winwood got up and played, um, uh, played my acoustic guitar on Can't Find My Way Home, which was a blind face song with Eric Clapton. And, uh, and, you know, and the crowd was freaking out and, 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 and Steve took the guitar off and went, thanks very much. And he walks off stage and Michael grabs him and says, no, 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 give me some loving. You got to play. Give me some loving. Nice. So, you know, we played, give me some loving with Steve Winwood uh, playing the keyboard right here, three feet next to me with me sharing a microphone with Michael McDonald going, give me some loving with David Pack playing and singing. And I, you know, I realized at that moment that here are three of the best rock vocalists 
you know, David Pack from Ambrosia, an amazing. Michael McDonald, you don't have to say anything about Michael. And Steve Winwood, God, I'm going, okay, I can die and go to heaven now because, you know, and, and it's amazing to be in a situation and be in a band who has hit records and, you know, and goes out on the road and opens for those great bands or, you know, plays and everything. And some of those situations that come up where suddenly I'm on stage with Steve Winwood and Michael McDonald, it's like unbelievable. Yeah. And, and me being a pretty humble guy, I kind of go, wow, you know, yeah. what did I do to deserve this? This is fantastic. I want to commend you for, you know, to me, anybody who is a teacher, anybody who is a life coach, anybody who is a counselor, you know, in my own small way through music, I wanted to try to help, you know, like with the suicide prevention thing, my song played a really small role back in the late 90s in starting out the first um, syndicated 800 number that anybody could call, you know, to, to talk about their problems. And the cool thing about that back then was, you know, because if, if you were a New York guy and you called 800 number and you got somebody in Georgia who had a Southern draw, you're not, you're not really connecting too much. And the, the cool thing that happened with uh, the, the first 800 suicide hotline was if you were in Texas it, and, and you called in to talk to somebody, it routed you immediately to the nearest person in Texas that was a, you know, a, a counselor or a, a specialist. And, you know, and it was all about saving lives because, you know, there's a lot of young people who don't relate to how weird the world is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I do what I do. You know, the, at the end of the day, it's about giving back. Like I, I know that you guys struggled on some level and we don't know the whole story, but I almost died hundreds of times and who you see that you're talking to is not who right. I used to be. I was really right. messed up for a long time. So, you know, and I used to struggle with my purpose. I've been sober 17, over 17 years. Good and for you. I used to struggle with what, what's my purpose. Like I rolled my truck coming down in Idaho Springs in 2002. You know that sign that says St. Mary's Alice? Yeah. I knocked that sign over with my truck. Oh and my God. I almost died and the blood coming out of my head and it was a mess. And But now I'm like, up until maybe like seven or eight years ago, I was like, what's my purpose? Like, you, why am I here? And you hear about a young kid getting wiped out and missing their whole life. But the right. reason I'm here and the reason we're all here is to be of service on some level. It's to help other people somehow. Exactly. And, you know, that you're doing what you do or uh, whether it be a elementary or junior high school teacher or a music teacher or whatever, you know, you might not know it at the time, but the music teacher and the music lessons that you take can set you on your life path or somebody helps you develop your poetry writing or writing a book or something. I mean, creativity is a holy experience, H-O-L-Y. You know, it's, it's very, very God-inspired and cosmic, you know. And like I said earlier, as a songwriter, if you trust in the muse, you never know what might come out. I mean, I've been involved with domestic violence uh, stuff. I've been involved with flood victims, suicide prevention stuff a lot of causes that I felt free to go. And, and most of my involvement was from a musical standpoint. 
because I know that, I mean, music being the universal language and the international language and, you know, it's emotional and people can relate to it even if they don't speak your language or whatever. Because I started when I was eight years old and my mom, the musician, found a real famous jazz guitar player in Colorado Springs where I grew up um, named Johnny Smith. I became one of his first students. I learned the proper way to play. And he was grooming me to be a little jazz guy and all this stuff. And he was so melodic and, and he could play faster than anybody, but hardly ever did, you know, and, and people who just play fast to show off or, Hey, aren't I great? It's like, I'd rather listen to one note from BB King than 50 notes from somebody who's trying to impress me. But I had an amazing musical upbringing until I was 13 or 14, and then the Beatles happened, and Ed Sullivan show, and I kind of went, like every other young kid, I want to be in a band, but the cool thing for me was I'd already played five years, so all my high school friends that were freshmen or sophomores and going, man, I should learn how to play guitar, I want to be in a band, I already had played five years, you know, and so I kind of had a leg up, and I was always in my high school and college years, I was always the youngest guy in the band. When I got into Firefall, we were all adults and in our 20s and stuff, but it was really great. And for me, anybody solos, uh, a soloist uh, on guitar or keyboards or saxophone or whatever, you are having musical conversation with your listener. And if you're just going blah, 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 all the time or, or just showing off or not, you know, like one run on sentence after another, you know, you need to speak in sentences and paragraphs and melodic ideas where you play something and you develop that and then you leave a space and then you play something similar and develop something new. And it's like a little journey that you take yourself and your listeners on when you're soloing. Okay. I mean, songwriting and singing a song you've written is a totally different deal than improvising on an instrument but I learned without I think I, I learned from the time I was about 11 or 12 years old and taking lessons from the famous Johnny Smith um, that taste and tasteful playing wasn't what you played it what's it's what you don't play mm, yeah and a lot of times the spaces you leave between a musical passage and your next musical passage actually speaks louder than anything you play yes yeah i heard it and i heard it a similar way it was like it's actually the the spaces in between the notes that make the music beautiful because yeah. without it without the spaces it would just be one long note or a bunch of notes that are just like somebody jabbering on and on hey this is what i did yesterday it's just like no when you're you know so i i had the most perfect instructor mentor when I was nine years old to 14, you know, and, um, and then when the Beatles hit and the British invasion, all of that really deep jazz stuff and all those fancy jazz chords, it basically started bouncing off my young head and I'm going, I want to be in a rock band. The musical sensibilities and having learned theory and having to play with really precise technique and not be sloppy. Now, if you want to be sloppy, that's one thing. But, you know, if you want to play, and I think if you listen to some of my best solos on Firefall Records, 
they're all right-brained, non-thinking solos, pretty much. A real quick story. Uh, when Firefall made our first record, we went down to Miami at Criteria Studios, and the BGs were down the hall, and Stephen Stills was down the hall, and, and uh, Eric Clapton had made his 461 Ocean Boulevard record there, and Dave Mason made a lot of the great records there. I mean, it was the hit factory. And we're, you know, and on the song Mexico, which Rick Roberts wrote, um, I knew that that was going to be my kind of moment to shine on that first record. I'm out in the studio warming up and getting my amp sounding good and just like getting ready to play it. Now, I'd been playing Mexico for a year and a half in live and just burning and not even thinking, ah, just burning. And uh, now it was the time to really get serious. And the day before, that I was to do this, my solo, we added those uh, mariachi horns in the middle of my solo that goes da 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 So in the middle of my solo, I had something new to contend with that I'd never played with before. So I was a little bit nervous about that. People are in and out of the control room. I'm out warming up. The producer hits the red light and goes, you ready? And I went, yeah. So he starts the song and I'm playing off the vocal because as a lead guitar player, you can't trample the vocal. You can't play over the vocal. You got to play off the vocal because the vocals are the main thing happening, you know, and I'm playing and it sounded good. And first verse, yeah. Second verse, you know, and then it came time for my solo and I'm going, sometime the horns are going to start playing. I don't know where. And I'm playing my solo, playing my solo. And all of a sudden the mariachi horns start playing. So I stop playing and then I play and then the horns play and then I played again and then the horn play and then it was over. And then I finished the song out and really burned. And it ended up being a one take spontaneous solo. Nice. And I went, wow. You know, and the producer goes, God, that was great. Come on in. And I went, you know, I had no idea where the horns were coming. Keep what I did. Let me see if I can just beat that section again, because I'll bet I can play better off against the horns. And he said, no, come on in. I said, Jim, come on. I've been working for this solo for a year and a half. And, you know, it's done in three and a half minutes. Let me see if I can just beat that. Let me play that again. He said, no, come on in. And I go, hey, so I take my guitar off. I kind of storm into the control room and the first person I see is my hero, Eric Clapton, who's been watching me play great. <laughs> and, you know, had I known he was in the room, I wouldn't have been able to pick up a pick or play anything, right. you know, but that's just another one of those moments where you're in a position to be doing this. And then here's my guitar hero, Eric Clapton, watching me play Mexico and I played great that day, you know, and it was like a one take thing, you know, and he stood when I kind of saw him, I kind of, and he stood up and said, keen playing man. And, and, and um, shook my hand and walked out. It was the only time I ever met Eric Clapton, but man, I'll tell you what, I, I'm glad I was playing good that day. What inspired you to, um, after all these years, write out another album? Well, actually, I, I, I'm the primary writer on the record, but I only wrote four of the songs and we have 10 of the songs. And I knew that uh, it didn't matter where we found the songs, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago, everybody in the band or everybody was fighting to get a song on because you made money as a songwriter back then. 
right. nowadays everything's free and and you know and streaming and nobody makes any money you know and uh you know so that was taken out of the equation and i with the other guys in the band we um we just put the search on for any song that would be appropriate and i knew even though that we you know hadn't made a record for 18 20 years or whatever that maybe half or a little less than half of the album really had to sound like firefall from the old days because if we just sounded like somebody knew they'd go and that's not firefall or you know what what is that and um you know so i tried to write a couple of the songs to really sound like firefall you know and we found a few other outside songs that are just fantastic songs um and uh so we have like four songs from outside writers uh drummer sandy ficka wrote uh co-wrote a song um we did and this was really great for me um okay so mark andy's the bass player in firefall he was in spirit a long long time ago in in, in southern california and you know occasionally at at gigs firefall not only would play their classic nature's way you know which is an environmental song and amazing you know it was like a uh, uh, an anthem song for a hippie generation back in the late 60s and 70s um and we'd occasionally play i got a line by uh, i got a line on you by by spirit and i talked mark i said mark we need to do nature's way we need to re we remake that song and you need to sing it and Mark went, well, you know, Mark, you know, kind of like Chris Hillman with the birds, they've always been the bass player kind of in the background and never was the lead singer. And, and Mark sang it really great. And the authenticity of him being the bass player back in the 1960s in that band Spirit from L.A., um, it was great. And he actually went and asked uh, Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles if he'd sing on the song. And, and uh, he also asked John McPhee from the Doobie Brothers. So we have uh, Timothy Schmidt singing the second verse and singing a lot of the harmonies with Mark Andes, who, interestingly enough, Timothy B. Schmidt, who, who grew up in Sacramento and Spirit was out in L.A., he, Timothy was in, um, was in high school at the time, and Mark Andes was his hero. And he, he's told Mark when we, Firefly got inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Poco, Firefall, and Stephen Stills and Manassas. It was like, wow, what a induction class. What an honor to be in there. But Timothy told Mark that, you know, that Mark had been his hero, musical hero for like 10 years. And that he would drive anywhere in the state of California from Sacramento to go see Spirit play and watch Mark. And of course, Mark would be a real humble guy is kind of uh, a little uncomfortable, but man, to have an eagle, uh, you know, Timothy B. Schmidt singing, singing on our record. How great is that? Dude, that's crazy stuff. So uh, you're telling all like happy, awesome stories, but I'm sure along the way, like you had some challenges oh. and like some bit what are some of those big challenges that you had to overcome without getting specific it was the 70s and we had three either drug addicts or alcoholics in the band here we were supposed to be a really big vocal band you know like the eagles or little river band and have stellar vocals and and sometimes you know our two singers couldn't sing 
you know, me being the guitar player who just plays lead, you know, and I, I'm a singer and I turned into a lead singer, but you know, when you're, when your singers can't really pull off the songs that people are paying money to hear, it's uh, it's tough. A lot of bands went through that in the seventies because, you know, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know? Yeah. I know that that was a thing. And, I, and that's kind of why I brought it up just because of the way that we do things here. It's interesting stuff. And there was a time for that. And so tell me one more thing. What do you wish that you knew before you got into the music business? I think I'd have to say, and this is really minor because I really wouldn't change much of anything good or bad. It's been, it's been my life and my career. And I've been really lucky. And like I told you, I mean, there are a hundred thousand really great lead guitar players out in the world that didn't join into a band that had great songs, you know, and they're still playing four sets a night at some little rat hole club just to make a living and try to pay the rent. And I know how lucky I am and to, and actually to have become the owner of Firefall and the, the brand and the leader of the band is just like, you know, it's, it's overwhelming in a really good way. A lot of times, um, I don't know. I, I would think that we were really wide eyed and bushy tailed and ready to go and didn't realize that the music business was a piranha tank mm. and that managers, lawyers, record labels, agents, they, they didn't really care if you made any money. The only thing they cared about was their 10 or 15 or 20%. I know guys from other bands that, you know, have told me the story about, yeah, we had that huge hit with that song in 1976. And, you know, six months later, we were all looking at each other as who made the money? None of us made the money. And, and you know, and of course, the bands and the songwriters, you create that product that becomes then a commodity that all the piranhas come in and do this to. So it might be something about that. I was asked in an earlier radio interview, how many times have you played You Are the Woman on stage? And I went, what, 20,000, 30,000? I don't know. He says, do you ever get tired of it? And I said, you know, I don't because... I'm, I'm a lucky boy to be in a band that has a song that's that big of a hit, you know, and people are paying good money to come and hear that song. And, you know, and my solo, my guitar solo on You Are The Woman, I'm glad it was a really good solo because I've had to play it 30,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is for the last 20, 25 years, when we play with three or four other bands out on the road and we play a 35 or 45 or 50 minute set, we're playing the same songs for the last 20 years because that's what people want to hear. And Firefall's lucky enough to have that many songs that are record recognizable. You know, when we play an hour and a half or two hour show, you know, we get to throw in nature's way or new songs or whatever, but I kind of, as lead leader of the band, I kind of coasted for a number of years, kind of just thinking, you know, we're never going to have another hit anyway. Radio's so weird now that even bands that were way bigger than us, like Toto or the Doobie Brothers, they're never going to have another hit song. They'll sell their albums at Red Rocks when they play, you know, and stuff. But to get a hit record now, forget it. I mean, impossible. 
particularly for an old band, maybe a new band that, you know, is just coming out or whatever. But I know that Firefall will never really have a hit record again. And that's just the nature of the business now. And, you know, and a lot of those factors kind of played in. And I kind of thought, you know, why should we put a new album out? But after a while, it became we have a legacy and we have writers and we have songs and we're a great band live and we need to have, we need to put a new album out. And, you know, and that's when we started putting the song search out. And when I started writing a little bit more for the record and uh, I'm really happy and proud of the record and glad we're going to have uh, a new, you know, a new album out and songs that people can, can listen to and kind of reminisce. Another important piece that you said, that's that you still love what you do. Absolutely. You know, and that comes from, that comes from being appreciative and knowing how lucky you are to be doing this. I mean, I haven't had a job, job, job since I banged nails in the eighties, you know, and for 50 years, I play guitar for a living. Wow. You know, how lucky is that? Yeah. Yeah. And I love our material. You know, there are some bands that have a hit song that they all kind of hate and they, you know, they, you know, they play live and they hate the song. So they change it up, you know, to kind of make them a little bit more excited. And the crowd's going, this sounds like my favorite song, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I just know how lucky Firefall is. And we were fortunate enough to get together in the mid 1970s when music was just i mean there were so many great bands in fact the new song way back when once i came up with the chorus way back when and i thought wow i could i could make this about kind of a retrospective and a historic and a looking back with love at the late 60s and how great that music was when i was growing up and so the first and first verse and first chorus is set in 1965. And the second verse and second chorus is 67. And the third verse and chorus is 1969. And the way I kind of, I knew what I wanted to do, but the way I started writing each verse was I got on Google and I said, what are the top hundred songs of 1965? And then there's a Beatles song and there's Rolling Stones and there's the birds, you know, and I'm going, there we go. And Bob Dylan, you know, and in 67, it was Aretha Franklin and the Young Rascals with Give Me Some Lovin', you know. And in 69, it was uh, Green River by, uh, you know, Creedence Clearwater, Proud Mary, Creedence Clearwater and Led Zeppelin and Let It Be by the Beatles. And it was so it's a retrospective of the guy in the song who the song is about. He and his girlfriend are looking back and remembering how great their lives were in the 60s when everything was innocent and, you know, and nobody really had any problems and, you know, and the Beatles and the Stones and the Birds and, you know, and all those great, Crosby, Stills and Nash, all those great bands. So um, I'm really proud of that song because it's a loving look back at the 60s and kind of, you know, looking back wistfully as a musician in those times. Because I'll tell you what, my... My life changed after I saw the Ed Sullivan show in 1964 with the Beatles on. There was like, you know, I stopped taking guitar lessons from the jazz master and went, I want to be in a band. <laughs> Dude, your energy is incredible. <laughs> I was like, 
I'm just cracking up listening to you talk. It's just great. And to think about having a new album out, you know, I'm 70 years old now. It's like, wow, I got a new album out. In fact, I got another new album with a new band. So it's like, I'm in two bands now. It's, you know, it, it's just so great to still be doing this. Like you, you know, our fan base, Firefalls fan base, who was young in the 70s, you know, they're all 50 or 60 or 70 years old now, you know, but their children and sometimes even their children's children grew up listening to Dan Fogelberg and the Eagles and Firefall, you know, and uh, it's amazing in our crowd when I look out and I see some 20 year old cute girls singing all the lyrics to our songs. And you're going, wow, your parents really liked us. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? You, you do what you can do. And I'm, I'm just really happy that, uh, that I've reached a lot of people through our records. And of course, I, I was only one sixth of those records. And you have a producer and you have a, a marketing guy and you have the record label and everything. So, you know, that to be a creator of something that people because a lot of people probably 80 or 85 percent of people said oh i could i could never play piano or i could never be a musician or i could never paint and i'm going bullshit of course you can that's right paint, pick up a paintbrush get some paints and just slap some on that's know? right that's and, exactly and that's right like, and, and really what music and painting and writing a book or writing stories or whatever really is a all about is an outlet, a healthy outlet to get anger, sadness, joy, all of everything out. And I'll tell you what, when I'm freaked out or I'm sad or something, you know, and pick up a guitar, I can play for an hour or two and feel much better, even though all I've done is play for myself in my living room, you know? So, you know, music is great and being creative is, is really great. I used to give these, um, not only songwriting seminars, but to me, it was creativity and accessing childlike creativity seminars. And I'd go to Nashville. And, and of course, in Nashville, everyone there was like, you know, I'm going to work on these lyrics for like nine months before they get sung just because I have to make the story right and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, you know what? The best songs you don't even think about. You just write, you just let them come out. And it really boils down to that you can't be afraid to fail. And you got to know going in as a lyricist that half of the lyrics I write are going to be cliched or bad or boy, that rhyme sucks or whatever. But you just let come out and suddenly you can get into this groove where songs write themselves in 10 minutes and you go, wow, where did this come from? Come from? You know, it's like unbelievable. Even if it's not about everybody, even if it's only like Joni Mitchell was so great to do, she'd write these extremely self-personal songs about her relationships or what she was going through or whatever. And people relate to that because we're all going through, you know, hard times and heartache and trying to make your life work and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm with you there trying to you know, trying to help people and, and, and America's got to get back to that now. And, you know, and what you do and trying to help people and being a life coach and, you know, and the way I look at it, it's, it's totally different for me, but, you know, I know I help people too by our albums and our songs. And even if they're songs that are 30, 40 years old, you know, if it makes a difference in people's lives or gives somebody joy, 
bingo, you know? Yeah. Oh, I agree. I think you you help people every day. Jock, thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time and uh, your energy. It's infectious. And I'm, I feel like happier just because we had this talk. So well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. And so the album comes out on December 11th. If people want to get in touch with you or buy the album or whatever, how do they do that? It'll be on our website is firefallofficial.com. And the full album comes out December 11th, which we're really proud of. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Funky Brain Podcast. Have a great day today. We'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. You can't think your way into a new way of acting. You have to act your way into a new way of thinking and being. Hi, I'm Dennis Berry, best-selling author, speaker, and life coach for addiction recovery. So many people are stuck in their addiction, whether it's like drugs or alcohol or food or shopping or sex or money, and they think they could just stop or try to figure it out on their own, but they don't change anything in their lives. Nothing changes if nothing changes. In order for change to happen, you have to change something. My clients will be like, oh, I'll stop tomorrow, or if this happens, then I stop, or someday I'll just give it up. And then they just sit around and think, 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 and hope for different or better results, but it doesn't happen. You have to take action. Action most people aren't willing to take. People don't become willing until they're in enough pain, me included. And unfortunately, they wait, and they wait and time passes by. Even if you are willing, you don't even know where to begin. And that's where I come in. In my best-selling book, Funky Wisdom, A Practical Guide to Life, I talk about the how approach. How do I get sober? How do I stop doing drugs? How do I become healthier? How do I have more successful relationships? How do I become more financially successful? And the answer is how. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I have to honestly admit that there's a problem. I have to honestly admit that things aren't going well and there needs to be changes. And then once I do that, the door opens and I become open to seeing new ways of living. And then I become willing to make those changes. You can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. That's why I'm here to help. And you know, I've been working with clients for over 15 years and helping them get clean and sober and change their lives and achieve inner peace and success. If you or somebody you love is struggling and doesn't know where to begin and how to make those changes to get to where they need to be, give me a call. Not tomorrow or in a week from now when you are hungover and your life is falling apart. Call now. Start making that change today and you'll be glad that you did. I'm sending you love and good vibes. Have a great day today.